The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, July 15th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's where we are as a society. Angry. No, you are. In the Latin, the coins say e pluribus unum. They should say no to s, meaning no, you are. A tu brute. No, you brute. Asked about his racist tweets, Trump said, no, they are. Asked about sending the Democratic Party into fits of dysfunctional rage, Pelosi said, no, they are. The squad said, no, you are. So Elizabeth Warren was speaking at the Netroots Nation conference, which is a conference of activists. It's sponsored by the Daily Coast, and she got activated. She was interrupted by hecklers who were brandishing a huge banner, reunify families and dignity, not deportation. So I'm going to play some of the heckling. It's hard to hear exactly what the hecklers were saying, but they were challenging her position on ICE because she is not in favor of hashtag abolish ICE. But why I'm really playing this is so that you can see how she uh, kind of used and seized the moment. You can make what they want to, to immediately legalize the 11 million undocumented let's, immigrants. And let's talk about immigration. She, she is going to talk about that issue. So Warren continued talking for about five more minutes with substance on immigration. She didn't drown out the protesters. She just answered them and kept answering them. And she ended with this. In this system, understand, you abuse immigrants, you physically abuse immigrants, you sexually abuse immigrants, you fail to get the medical care that they need. You break the law of the United States of America. Warren vowed to create an agency within the Department of Justice to lock up ICE agents who abuse immigrants. In other words, you'll use ICE to arrest immigrants too aggressively? We'll arrest ICE. No, you are. She gets a standing ovation for that. It is of a piece that is quite popular now at Democratic rallies. You go and see different candidates and often a chant of lock him up will break out. Lock him up. We're going to prison. No, you are. I know that fighting fire with fire is appealing, uh, especially to the people whose motto is burn it all down. And of course, rhetoric in politics has, has always been fiery. But now the mood is so incendiary and the solutions are more often. I'm sorry, but now the mood is so incendiary and solutions are more often than not scorched earth. Is it because the moment demands it? I don't know. I'm literally saying that. I'm trying to puzzle through this. I mean, yeah, Trump is a horrible, horrible president who revels in upsetting people. But we're also living in a time of media that is maximized for conflict. It's practically neurologically designed to engender the most vivid and most vicious reactions So should we say, well, of course, the discourse is dominated by one side calling for literally arresting the most prominent symbols of the other side. Of course, that's where we are, because look at the facts. The facts warrant it. Or is it more to the point to say, well, of course, the crowds are screaming for scalps because there's no way that our avenues of communication allows for any calls that are less extreme than that to be heard. There is a demand for furious justice. Is it because we sense pervasive injustice or because 
were made to feel fury. On the show today, I spiel about, okay, I will tell you why Donald Trump can't stop tweeting and saying racist things. It's for the same reason he can't stop putting his name on tall buildings. As garish as it might seem to you and me, there is a market for it. But first, are you like me? Do you like Mean Dave? Well, not Mean Dave, but back when David Letterman was on Late Night and The Late Show, he was cutting. He was no BS. He was incisive. And because he was incisive, he was often insightful. Now he's a new show on Netflix and he's getting along with everyone. And Jason Zinneman, the comedy correspondent of the New York Times, and I both kind of agree. Bring back old Dave. It might be a little bit more discomforting, but I think it's better. Joining me now is Jason Zinneman, who writes about comedy for the New York Times. And if you write about comedy, it means that you also write about the guys, mostly guys, who host the late night shows and interview guests. So we're not talking about newsmen. We're talking about the increasingly news-oriented interview styles of late night hosts. Jason and I both agree that David Letterman was great at this. I don't know if there's anyone now who's even very good, although I find many of them likable. But let's just start. I don't know if anyone could do what Letterman can. Do you think in 2019 that sort of acerbic, sometimes confrontational style would fly? No, for two reasons. One, I think it would get ripped to shreds on social media. Mm -hmm. I think in a weird way there's a a higher premium on likability oh, yeah. today than there there was for these kind of figures. And two, now late night, it's one thing if you're, you could be acerbic about a political figure, right? It feels, but to be, well, Letterman was acerbic about showbiz figures, which are ultimately matter less, yeah. which as a viewer was part of the fun of it. You're like getting out, you know, you see like a Julie Klausner's had a, you know, she had this great show, Difficult People, and a lot of her sense of humor was, a, and this is true of Billy Eichner too, who's on the show, which is like getting outraged about meaningless stuff. Right. In a time when there's all sorts of horrific stuff going on in the world, right? Part of the the humor of it is like getting mad about share or whatever. The uh, so <laughs> I think that um, in a climate when there's a lot of legitimate things to be mad, really angry about, which is what a lot of the purpose of late night TV is now. I think it would seem off key to be really going in on Reese Witherspoon or whatever. Especially if she's right there next to you, yes. if she's the person you're interviewing. Look, I've written Fallon off a long time ago, but it does seem like Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert both have ideas, the ideal of we'll get people on to our show and sometimes have a difficult interview. I don't think any of them have ever been as satisfyingly difficult as Letterman. But why? Why do you think that or is? Stewart, you know, I mean, that's one thing. You know, one thing I miss about Jon Stewart, and I yeah. say a lot of ways he's overrated, but he, I mean, not a lot, but I think he, he, the sort of myth of him is. But uh, he would have confrontational interviews with newsmakers in a way that I don't even think even these political hosts don't often have. Like Seth Meyers had one with Meghan McCain. Meghan McCain. And but I, made, I thought his pushback to her was, first of all, I agreed with every point that Seth was making. I don't think it was, and it was widely praised because it's uh, different for that genre. But if you put it up against even a competently done news interview, it wasn't as good. Yeah, yeah, Didn't yeah. press her as much. Yes, yes. No, I mean, I'm, I like seeing debate. And I like seeing confrontation on these interview shows, and they're it's kind of absent. And Letterman is a real anomaly because you had it with 
actors and entertainers and in a way i mean he was mean he was you know it was disproportionate and there was he probably women took it harder than male actors and there were a lot of things about it to criticize yeah but it also was one of the most compelling parts of that show and uh also he found a lot of humor from you know these kind of confrontational interviews and some of those interviews, they, he developed long. Like Cher is a good example. Cher became, you know, a regular guest forever. Yeah. Or Sandra Bernhardt. Man, I'll tell you, my favorite romantic comedy as a kid was Sandra Bernhardt and Terry Garr as Terry Garr on oh Letterman. My God, yeah. They, they were. They had such chemistry. Yep. And on one level, you know, obviously Letterman has a history of, you know, leering, uncomfortable relation and, and real relations. And having sex with the staff. <laughs> and having yes. sex with staff. <laughs> and, but I would say compared to Carson and Leno, they did, he had these really rich relationships, peer relationships with female guests back yeah. then that were fascinating to watch and that were prickly sometimes, but, uh, you know, also fun in the way that kind of like film noir romances were. Do you think that the current crop could do it if they wanted to? could find it within themselves to be as caustic or go at guests or not to be unduly for no reason cruel, but to be really pointed, which is yeah. something that I want. I think they, they could. I don't think they, I think most of them don't want to. I yeah. mean, I'll tell you something they, they definitely could do, for instance. You, Letterman, on some level, people there knew they, they this was an asset. Like He wouldn't say that, but he did. So a good example is Charles Groton. Yeah. Right. He was one of the most sought after talk show guests for years. Right. And he played a character. He played a jerk. Yeah. So he was such a jerk that you could be a jerk to him. Right. Right. And I don't see why Seth Meyers couldn't have a Groden like person come on and be a jerk. So, you know, that could ha- be a comic foil where you could be a jerk. Even Harvey Picar and Brother Theodore yes. would essentially come on and give Letterman a hard time. Yes. Yes. I don't know. Maybe back then we were in a place as viewers or, you know, maybe just that this, this guy was this one off talent and there was magic in a bottle. But you can make the case that maybe we were in a place as viewers where we just needed less therapy. Where it was the purpose of these shows weren't wasn't to, you know, assuage us after the end of another horrible day, you know? Right. Maybe we got a little more joy in the in the frisson of tension. Right. And, and maybe we could do that now, but no one believes it. Maybe, maybe there's a, especially with the whole media being so segmented. You're telling me that someone couldn't say, "Look, my little niches. I'll be a hard ass." I think you're right. I, look, if you look at horrible times in history, you look like depression, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like war, right? Culturally, there's usually two. Uh, opposite responses. One is that the work gets very political, then it's commenting on what's going on, right? And then the other, there's escapist art. And there's right. both noble traditions. I mean, you, the horror is a good example, right? The, the original Frankenstein, you know, Dracula, Wolfman, that, that came about during this period of depression and, t- you know... Right, right, the movies, the, the movies. movie version. People, right. now, now, they're both, you know, you can give political readings of Frankenstein for sure, but they also provided people some escapism. And I think that I would, there is a lot of, there is some comedy out there that I would describe that, operating that way now. Um, but not, not in the... Not in late night. Interview no. format and no. not... Real. I think there are a couple other things going on. I think American interviews are much more timid than 
the BBC and British interviews. Yep. I think this has something to do with the tradition of prime minister question time. I just think it's hmm. totally culturally different. But I do think likability or perceived likability as the number one thing to strive for for a late night host that is uh, holding sway. You know who was Too good? Much at, you know who else was good at this and underrated? Uh, Chelsea Handler. Mm-hmm. Chelsea yeah, yeah, Handler yeah. gave. I mean, pe- people like there were other people who were harsh in host hosting, like you know Joan Rivers, but Chelsea Handler as an interviewer could be very sharp and could be very probing and prickly, and mm-hmm. and, and and didn't care if you liked her. Yeah. I actually miss. Chelsea Handler as a talk show host. Maybe there was, maybe this was a reason. I love Colbert's new show, but maybe there's a reason why the Colbert rapport, there was something to it. Because even though he was playing a character, so it was a little bit of the safe space, like it did come across as a confrontation. That's a good point. To some extent. That's a really good point. And maybe he needed that character to get to these places that you would see on a letter. I mean, you're right. Some of those interviews got very confrontational, heated, but there was a level of them that you knew there was safe yeah. and there was a levity to it because he was not a real character. He yeah. was like a puppet show, right? So that was such a unique show. It's funny now. It's been, it seems like it's a million years ago the Colbert Report was on and his current show, which look, is a ma- is a massive success. It's winning, right? Yes. Uh, is so I think different. it's really well crafted too. I, you know, I, I agree, although to be honest with you, I'm not like incredibly well versed. I don't watch. That's my go-to. That's what I watch. That's what you go to. You yeah, watch it every night? So what's your take on how, has, has it improved over the last couple of years? I think, so. I mean, I just think they have the best writing staff. Mm. I don't know. Maybe Kimmel's is really good too. I'm not watching that every night. I'm watching right. the highlights. It does seem that he he has a high slugging percentage, high batting average, and he's the guy that if someone's going to give you the best jokes, most likely they'll come from him. And as an interviewer yourself, how do you how do you grade his interviewing? I think that he's incredibly smart, but I think that he is he probably thinks he pushes, but he doesn't really push because mm-hmm. you want likability and you want right. people smiling and I guess coming back. And the same thing with Seth Meyers, who obviously is really confrontational against Trump in the closer look segments, and every once in a while has someone on the show where he tries to be serious with, but it never gets to that. Or I don't mean serious, tries to be a little, tries to push them, but never gets to that really satisfying I'll place. say where you really see this is relevant. I don't know if you saw the movie Late Night. Mm-hmm. All right, the, so Late Night, where Emma Thompson plays a Letterman-like figure. She even said that she based it partly on Letterman. There's a point, you know, she has this, her character has this growth at the end, right? Yeah. And the, the kind of moment that you realize she, she made the mistake is when she ridicules a YouTube star. Hmm. And then she <laughs> she learns to be kind at the end through the help of her writer. Yeah, and, and that scene, but the, and that scene is growth and a good thing. Scene yeah. is a growth and a good thing. And you look it, on a human level, it is growth is a good thing. Right. But on the other hand, <laughs> we've got all these YouTube stars out there. Can't we make fun of them? Like, yeah. is that like? You tell me, PewDiePie doesn't need a takedown. Exactly. <laughs> like, there's more. I mean, back in Letterman's time, you had to find Harvey Pekar in this right. thing. There's Harvey Pekars all over the place now, and who aren't as good as Harvey Pekar. And um, I, I just thought that was very telling and of the time that the moment that we're supposed to think as a viewer that Emma Thompson has gone too far yeah. is when she's mean to a YouTube star. This is a woman who's like this 60, whatever, 50, she's a legendary talk show host and she has the temerity to look down her nose at somebody who's a, I mean, it just, I, that felt to me, and I, I'm, not, I'm not even crazy, it felt like of the moment, it felt yeah. very of the zeitgeist, but, but you know, unimaginable in for like a, a Letterman late night fan. So the one thing we haven't talked about is Letterman's new Netflix show where he does long form interviews. What does he do? Six a season? He's maybe banked 12 yeah. of them. Yeah. And there, I think you and I both agree, 
range from okay to pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because oh. there's none, and, and he has an hour to talk to these people, but he's mostly deferential and he's mostly toothless. And you said so on Twitter and people said, why can't you just let the guy have his happiness? <laughs> but it's not really about that, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad he's back. It's good to see him be uh, on TV again. But what's fascinating to me is how he's become directly the opposite of what he originally was. He's not, not only is he not needling celebrities and, and making fun of fame and pomposity and pretentiousness, he is absolutely deferential to it. He is fawning over it. He's, I mean, Kanye, who is the most, if there ever was like a ripe target, a balloon to pinpoint, it's him. And, you know, even when he, when Kimmel interviews him, Kimmel will give like, you know, He'll, he'll gl- have a glance or a line. There's a way to do it without really being right. mean. Yeah. And Letterman has zero interest in doing that anymore. And I think to some people, they like that, you know. But for uh, someone who really, you know, has respect for that Letterman tradition, of, it's a little saddening. Well, it's also, it is true, and you find this in interviews, that he was angry then and he's in a better place now and yeah. he meditates and he's done therapy and we've heard all the interviews. That's great. That's great for him. But if it's also true that... We have really rejected the idea that, say, genius correlates to insanity or that Mm. misery drives great art. And I think we're over that idea. How come when it goes the other way, we still buy into it? You know, how come it's like, well, of course, the interview is going to be toothless because he's happy and a happy guy can't do a pointed interview. Right. That's a really good point. I've never heard it expressed that way. But you're absolutely right. You're you're the we are past that. But (laughs) I mean, we're at a place in the culture where the premium is so much on being a pleasant, likable figure. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it comes to, I think, fame and showbiz, that I think there is room to like, especially with where there's like serious political concerns, like like, to not puncture that now again feels like an abdication of what you should be doing. And there are, it also seems to me that there are so many ways to do that, that a certain percent of the guest will not come on or be offended in the moment. And then some other publicist will prevent the guest from coming on. But it also does seem like there is a way to do it and to have the person who's the quote unquote victim be okay with it. Right. Completely, completely. And and to have the next person who comes on to be like Cher, knowing I know the gauntlet I'm going through and I'm happy to do it. And she comes out better uh, at the other end. Look, I, I, I don't think you, you should just be mean for the sake of being mean. No. But at the end of the day, you have to remember this is true for people like for journalists or for entertainers. The audience is who you're you're talking to. Right. Right. That's who you're trying to serve. It's not celebrities. It's not guests. They're means to an end. It's the audience. Right. And you don't want to pander to the audience. Right. right? But if you're pitching this to other celebrities, which, frankly, these people have become celebrities. Right. That's their, they're sort of part of the circle. Then I think you're, you're letting opportunities waste, because what I found is in writing the book on Letterman is a lot of people related to Letterman as kids watching his show, seeing him poke fun at these rich and famous people. And they said, hey, I identify with this. He's the first person to, to you know, say like, oh, this person isn't relatable. He's, you know, full hot air, right? right. He, he was speaking for the audience. And that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing, in, not just in talk shows and culture, but in politics too, right? That uh, you see when, when politicians lose their touch is when they forget they're, they're speaking to just people in Washington or you forget that you're speaking to voters and, they, and you're, you're losing sense of where they're coming from. Yeah. And look, if anyone listening to 
this wants to say that we are just endorsing the mean or that we see no legitimate and great place for an interview that's more based on, you know, shared passions and hosting guests really getting along. That's not the I mean, I love Conan O'Brien's podcast. Yeah, He's not trying to do that. It's fantastic. I think that Mark Marin does a really good job doing a little bit of both of what we're saying. I'm just saying, and I think you agree, that we're living in this unbelievably fractured media world with hundreds of interview shows out there, and there are none that are doing the thing that Letterman did when there were seven shows in 1989. I feel like you should be a jerk to me now. <laughs> that would be the best way to end this. Yeah. Well, you come in here, we're both wearing three-button shirts. You're, you're up to the top. Like, I don't know, what do you got, a priest thing going on? Yeah, that's my look. I think, I think I'm pulling it off better than you. The, yeah, uh, you should be pulling it off, Cinnamon. <laughs> I tell you. All right. We'll be back after this. Jason Cinnamon covers comedy and uh, just lambast David Letterman on the internet. It covers comedy for the New York Times. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And now the spiel. So what to say about Donald Trump's tweets? Oh, you know the tweets. So interesting to see progressive Democratic Congress. Oh, he doesn't say Democratic. No, he leaves off the ick. Democrat Congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world. Now loudly and viciously telling people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, so powerful that you have to engage in this as the president. Anyway, how our government should be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it's done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. What to say? Maybe nothing. I mean, that's probably the best strategy. Trump obviously wants to shift the conversation from his threat of ISIS raids that didn't materialize from his botched strategy with questions about citizenship on the census. He wants to shift the conversation. He loves to stir the shift. He's a great shift stirrer, that POTUS. He is specifically trying to create a conversation about his own racism or lack therein. But before we get to that, let's address some of the lesser remarked upon ideas in this tweet. One, Nancy can't arrange free travel arrangements. There's no such thing as free travel arrangements, you kleptocrat. Second of all, yes, three of the four members of the so-called squad were born in the U.S. Ilana Omar emigrated from Somalia. This has been amply fact-checked. But what about that crime-infested charge? Infested, by the way, that's purposeful. That's quite purposeful there. So it's a little unclear because he's a lot unclear. If in crime-infested places they come from, he meant their countries, which, you know, in Ayanna Presley's case is the country of Cincinnati. I don't know what country he thinks they were born in. I'm sure Ayanna Presley's people were here a lot longer than the Drumps, for instance. And where was Ocasio-Cortez supposed to be from? She's Puerto Rican, part of the United States. Anyway, I think he may have meant their districts. So let's talk about this. Are their districts crime-infested? I got to say... When Ocasio-Cortez's 14th Congressional District of New York was represented by Joe Crowley, or when Presley's 7th District in Massachusetts was represented by Michael Capuano, would the idea of them being crime-infested really come to mind? The statistics show that Ayanna Presley, uh, where she's from and where Capuano were from, Dorchester, Roxbury, they are 
slightly higher than the national average in terms of crime. There are some places within her district that aren't higher than the national average, Cambridge, Everett, let's say. I can't find crime stats by congressional district. If you can, please let me know. But it does seem that Massachusetts 7 does have slightly more crime than the national average. The same is true of Tlaib's and Omar's districts. I mean, Omar's district includes all of Minneapolis. It does have more crime than average. Crime's been coming down in Minneapolis over the last couple of years. But let's take AOC. She represents Queens and the Bronx, but very safe parts of Queens and the Bronx. In Queens, the safe neighborhoods like Astoria and Elmhurst and Woodside. In the Bronx... The neighborhoods she represents are Throg's Neck, which is safe, Parkchester, the overall crime rate there is 29% lower than the national average, Morris Park, where the Einstein College of Medicine is located. She literally represents a neighborhood called Country Club, and she represents neighborhoods next to an actual country club, including Trump's own country club, the Trump links at Ferry Point. So when he tells AOC to go back to the crime-infested and broken place where she comes from, he's literally telling her to go back to that place where his golf course is. Of course, the big question about these tweets is, were they racist? You know, it's an interesting question. It really comes down to a close reading of the intent. Now, of course, they're a racist. He's a racist guy. He says racist things. They're a racist. Let's not overthink this. Will that however, in any way impinge Trump, slow his racist role? Well, let's look at the history. He did, after all, back off and apologize after after near-universal condemnation of his criticism of Judge Curiel, his remarks after Charlottesville, his leaked description of shithole countries. I mean, there were some real decent glimmers of decency. Oh, come on. He didn't do any of that. He just doubled down and got madder. He wants to be called a racist. That is literally his goal, to be called a racist in a way that 42% of supportive Americans have already made their peace with. They might even like it. They might agree or disagree, but they've definitely priced it in. He thinks that Americans agonizing over racism will drive Americans away from Democrats. And this is why he's eager to be an antagonist. Is he right? Do other Republicans think he's right? If not, why won't other Republicans condemn him? I have three theories about that. One, political expediency. Two, they might be racist also. Three, it doesn't matter when they condemn him. Take Paul Ryan. Remember when he said this about the Judge Curiel comments? Claiming a person can't do the job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. I think that should be absolutely disavowed. It's absolutely unacceptable. And now, Paul Ryan's gone, Trump's in office, and he has the biggest megaphone in the world to say of Paul Ryan. So Paul Ryan was not a talent. He wasn't a leader. Paul Ryan was a lame duck for a long time as speaker. So today, Fox News reporter John Roberts asked the president at a press conference about these remarks. Were they racist? What about the fact that people who were racist think they're racist? Here's that exchange. Does it concern you that many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that point? It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. And all I'm saying, they want to leave, they can leave now. In Trump's mind, there is no way to lose this argument. He wants that question and he can't answer it wrong. This is how he thinks about it. Having this exchange is winning. 
anything short of maybe one or two universally acknowledged ethnic slurs, anything short of that, Trump clearly believes that there is no racially tinged, inflected, or insensitive comment that he can make that will redound to his harm. He loves the conversation. He loves getting 60% of America upset with him over racism because he believes he won't pay a cost and eventually the story will metastasize into something that tears apart his opponents. Steve Bannon said as much. He said, quote, the Democrats, the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. Bannon thought this was such a good message that he took it on the road. He went to France and gave the same advice to Marie Le Pen's National Front. Let them call you racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Let them call you nativists. So Trump has made a calculation, or maybe it wasn't a calculation. Maybe it was a spasm born of a pre-existing theory, or he has no way not to think like this. Or maybe a way to look at it is that Steve Bannon recognized that Trump was just helpless in terms of refraining from these diatribes. And so Steve Bannon created this permission structure for Trump to engage in them. Or Better yet, what I think has happened is that the multi-shirted Svengali saw that he had this perfect provocation machine in Trump, and he steered him into the fray a bit. He convinced Trump what Trump already sensed, that this was working for him, and he helped to create a remorseless, unstoppable, racially incendiary president, which is perfectly suited for our time, perfectly crafted for his purpose, and of course, perfectly unacceptable out of the occupant of the Oval Office. And that's it for today's show. A dozen pizzas, it's those damn kids. No, it's Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader who produced The Gist. And please listen to What Next? The Gist's sister podcast, or maybe we're their sister. Anyway, I bring up the whole sister-brother thing because they're talking to Farhad Manju today. Who wants to go as they? T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts, but she also produces the newest sitcom from CBS, starring Cheryl Teagues and Minute Bowl. He's a rancher. She's a model. Together they found love in Big Tex and Little Roadie. The gist. Do you know I saw David Letterman do that bit in about 1983? And I've been searching for it ever since. And it might not actually exist, but I still would like to think it does. Upru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>